following sermon is made available by Antioch Presbyterian Church, a mission work of Calvary Presbytery of the Presbyterian Church in America, located in Woodruff, South Carolina. For more information about Antioch Presbyterian Church, please visit AntiochPCA.com or contact us at info at AntiochPCA.com. May the Lord bless you as you receive gracious instruction from His Word. Colonial America, there were a series of acts that led up to the American Revolution, and some of the most unpopular acts were called the Quartering Acts. There were at least two of them in 1765, and then again in 1774, just a couple of years before the revolt broke out, you might say. These Quartering Acts were wildly unpopular, as I said, so unpopular that the Third Amendment to the U.S. Constitution, an item included in the Bill of Rights, specifically prohibits the quartering of soldiers in private homes. Why is that? Why were they so unpopular? Why was this such a pressing issue to the American colonists? Well, you see, this is how it went down. The English Parliament forced an unfunded mandate upon uh, colonial Americans to house British soldiers at their, that is, the colonists' own expense. And they had no say in the matter. Technically, the parliament empowered state legislatures in 1765 and then governors of the colonies, uh, I should say colonial legislatures, and then governors of the colonies in 1774 to identify homes and inns and places where the soldiers could lodge. And there was nothing the owners could do to say no. But you see, the quartering itself, if you think about it, in and of itself, it's not really all that unpopular. It was the situational context that made the quartering acts so repugnant, so obnoxious to the colonists. If danger was imminent, if you're in some frontier town and you're surrounded by Indians and, and French forces during the French and Indian War, uh, which, in which the first quartering act would have been levied, uh, do you think you would mind having a soldier in your guest room or having a few soldiers in the city inn? No, of course not. It would be reassuring. You're in wartime. The more guns, the more soldiers, the better, generally speaking. But without the motivating force of imminent threat of harm by hostile forces around you, Bearing the expense of housing soldiers is much less attractive. Indeed, to the colonists, they began to wonder, why is it that King George and the Parliament want soldiers in our homes and in our towns? What are they so afraid of? What are they worried we might do? It in and of itself became not a protective measure, but even a threat against the colonists. What does this have to do with Matthew chapter 10? Well, in the first two of Christ's great discourses or sermons, you have the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew 5 through 7, and then you have this ordination sermon, as Matthew Henry puts it here in chapter 10. Uh, here in Matthew's Gospel, these first two great discourses of our Savior um, have statement after statement where he goes to great length to instruct his hearers in the situational context of his spiritual mission to save his people from their sins. Uh, one of the theme verses in chapter 1, verse 21. And what Jesus is telling his disciples over and over again as he's developing them for kingdom service is that they're not entering into service during peacetime. 
The situational context is one of spiritual warfare. They are to be soldiers ready to fight. He, indeed, is David's son, but also David's Lord, the promised Messiah King who is descended from heaven to lay claim to his kingdom here on earth. In fact, to reclaim it from those who have conquered it. Now, some of his hearers misunderstood that to mean that he was going to come and to overturn Roman oppression. But indeed, his kingdom is a spiritual kingdom. And this warfare is a spiritual warfare. Nonetheless, he is a conqueror. And there are plenty of hostile forces to conquer. So, as he, in chapter 10, deputizes, ordains, commissions, and even sends out his disciples to join him in his mission of preaching and teaching the gospel of the kingdom as spiritual conquest, he warns them of the opposition, of the slander, the persecution, and perhaps a more general word, the rejection that they're going to face. He even gives them protocols for what to do when they're rejected by a particular village or city or home. And namely, move on. Don't waste your time. Now, at the end of this great ordination sermon, which we have here in chapter 10, he gives them some hope. Jesus Christ gives his disciples some hope right before he sends them out on this first tour of service. And what is the nature of this hope? It's hope of a good reception among those who will recognize the power and the blessing of his message, which the apostles are to bear. He's giving them hope that they will indeed, by perhaps few or many, they will indeed be received with gladness by those who hear him, at least certain of them. In this promise of hospitality, of a good reception, Christ reveals to all of us, his disciples then and today, and to all his hearers, a great truth, which I hope will be impressed upon our hearts this evening in fuller measure, perhaps, than when you first arrived. And that is, namely, God graciously rewards all those who receive Jesus Christ as he is offered to us in the gospel. God graciously rewards all those who receive Jesus Christ as he is offered to us in the gospel. We'll consider this truth from this text this evening under two headings. In the first place, the gospel reception. The gospel reception which Jesus images here and describes here uh, with a number of illustrations. And then secondly, the gospel reward, which likewise he illustrates in these verses. The gospel reception, the gospel reward, as we consider the reward of a good reception. Looking at verse 40 with me, notice how Jesus makes this turn into this final part of his sermon. He says, he who receives you receives me in the New American Standard. We might perhaps better or more clearly translate this, whoever receives you receives me. Quite literally, the one receiving you receives me. Jesus is making a timeless general statement which applies not only to the first tour of duty of his apostles, uh, about which we have no real details after this chapter, but actually applies even to the end of the age. Applies to gospel ministers, applies to disciples of Christ in every generation. Whoever receives you receives me, Jesus says. And he who receives me receives him who sent me. 
And then, after making this grand uh, pinnacle statement, he then descends uh, bit by bit, going from the greater to the lesser, working through a few examples. He says, He who receives a prophet in the name of a prophet shall receive a prophet's reward. He who receives a righteous man in the name of a righteous man shall receive a righteous man's reward. And whoever, in the name of a disciple, gives to one of these little ones even a cup of cold water to drink, truly I say to you, he shall not lose his reward. A few things I wish to point out to you here. Whenever we read in the name of, what Jesus is saying is for the sake of. If you receive a prophet because he's a prophet, if you receive uh, me because of who I am, if you receive a disciple because he's a disciple, or if you receive a righteous man because he's a righteous man, you will receive the corresponding reward. That is what Jesus is saying to his disciples is those who receive you for the sake of the noble office you occupy, message you bear, or spiritual quality that is in you and intelligently grasped by those doing the receiving, they will receive a reward. Jesus clarifies this even further in Mark chapter 9, verse 41. He says, For whoever gives you a cup of water to drink because of your name as followers of Christ, truly I say to you, he will not lose his reward. I want to illustrate this with a story. Those of you who've been believers for a long time, I know, uh, perhaps maybe with one exception or something in this room, but I know that you would have a number of loved ones, children, perhaps spouses, parents, uh, cousins, aunts, uncles, grandchildren, whatever the case may be, you will have at least one relative who is far afield, disinterested in the gospel, even antagonistic to your Christ, wants nothing to do with him. Well, imagine this scenario in your mind, and perhaps you've even experienced this. You hear that person has become a Christian. You see him or her again, and that individual is full of the love and joy of Christ. How glad your heart becomes. Amen. You see one who was so against God, now firmly in the camp of life, we might say. And then you learn of who it was, what servant of God, ordained or not ordained, doesn't make a difference, what servant of Christ it was that shared the gospel to this loved one, resulting in his or her conversion. How would you regard that man or woman? Now, many of you know I'm a dedicated Presbyterian, but if a Pentecostal leads my brother to Christ, I'm going to give that Pentecostal a big hug and tell him or her, thank you, thank you, thank you a thousand times. doesn't matter the denominational affiliation. If a true believer in Christ leaves a loved one to Christ, you immediately feel this, this burden of debt to that person. Am I wrong or am I right? That's... The, that's what Christ is saying in our passage this evening. For the sake, not of the person's associations, not of the person's family ties, not of the person's benefit that can be rendered to you in some material sense or power or, or worldly nobility, but for the sake of that person's, of this disciple's spiritual good, you receive him or her as your own 
and do good to him or her. Well, then in that case, you will receive the gracious reward for you have received Christ himself in that interaction. Not for any other reason, Christ says, good or ill, friendly or filial, neighborly or amusing, not because of celebrity status, not because of power wielded or wealth attained, but for no other reason than the gospel. That's what we're talking about. That's what we're after. This was really pressed home to me this past week. I was mowing the lawn of um, my rental property as I'm preparing it for a new tenant, and it was really hot on Friday. I think it was Thursday or Friday when I was doing it. I guess it was Friday. It was excruciatingly hot, and my next-door neighbor there um, came out and said, would you like a glass of water? And of course, I was thinking about my sermon, thinking about the text and what illustrations I was going to use. So I almost thanked her for giving me the sermon illustration. But I took the glass of water, and we had a nice, friendly conversation about the house, about the neighborhood, and what have you. Now, her gesture was exceedingly sweet and neighborly and kind. I don't want to discount it at all. But that's not what Christ is talking about here. She didn't give me a glass of water because I'm a gospel minister. She didn't give me a glass of water because I'm a Christian. Though she knows that and she appreciates that, she's a believer as well, at least would testify to be one. But she gave me a glass of water because... I was hot out in the sun, and it's a neighborly thing to do. An altruistic deed, nonetheless, but not one that Christ would be referring to here when he's talking about whoever does good to you for my sake shall receive a particular reward. There maybe are more cynical examples we could multiply. The salesman who gives uh, promotional material out or free samples in order to try to win your business. Or the politician who makes promises and specific promises in exchange for campaign donations. Or perhaps uh, those who, if a celebrity walked in today, would say, oh, come sit down here next to me. Not because you wish to honor them because they're here to worship, but because you really want to sit next to this celebrity or spend time with him or her or something of that nature. Christ is casting all of those worldly considerations for good and for ill, casting them aside as he's heralding forth the greatest motivation for doing good unto anybody that there is. And that is, you're a servant of the living God. How can I help you in your service? You are a follower of Christ. How can I bring to you some measure of comfort in this dry and thirsty land? Can I offer you a glass of water? Even such a small gesture, Christ says, surely will be rewarded. This is the gospel reception. For the sake of the gospel, welcoming the disciples. Christ consoles his disciples here. After all this talk of persecution, he says there will be some, indeed, who will receive you and grant you help and aid in your mission. Do not be despondent. Brothers and sisters, if you've been following Christ for any length of time, you know the nature of the work that is before us, whether you're in full-time Christian ministry or not. There's so many discouragements. There are so many difficulties. There are so many obstacles. So many, it seems, people who stand in the way, lack of means that stand in the way, difficulties before us. How comforting it is to hear our King promise to you aid, promise to you a measure, however so small, of success in your ministry and in the Christian life. Believer, take heart. 
Christ is good to His Word. Indeed, we can turn over this passage in a prayer, asking for God to put in our way those people of peace who will help us. I can't tell you how many times I would go door to door in West Philadelphia or even around here, and you'd come to a door and someone would say, it's hot out there. Do you want a glass of water as you go around? Even if they're not particularly interested in the gospel. But yet, how much more sweet it is when you, when you come to somebody's home and they invite you in to sit down and to talk of the things of God, either to encourage you as a fellow believer or out of a sincere curiosity and desire to know what it is you have to offer in Christ's name. Truly, this should be a great encouragement to you seminary students who are preparing for ministry or any of you who aspire to serve the Lord in the church or beyond these four walls in your community. The Lord knows who are His, and He will put some in your way who will be an encouragement to you. You can bank on it. You can pray for it with confidence. Now, the second thing I hope to show to you now, after we've considered this gospel reception, what it means to receive somebody in the name of a prophet or a righteous man, is now the gospel reward, where we'll look a bit more particularly at the individual examples Christ gives. Look again at verse 40. You notice... He who receives you all receives me. He's addressing the apostles. So we might consider that Christ is saying, whoever receives an apostle, or more broadly, a Christian servant, whoever receives an apostle receives Jesus Christ himself. Whoever receives Christ receives the one who sent him, namely the Father. We'll get back to that in a little bit. And then we step down from the apostle to the prophets, generally tied together in the New Testament. You go to Ephesians and Uh, We're told that the church is built on the foundation of the apostles and the prophets, namely the Word of God and those through whom God's Scripture has come to us by God's decree. But a prophet, he who receives a prophet, receives a prophet's reward. We looked at one example of that in 1 Kings 17. Another one you could look at is 2 Kings 8, as I mentioned. What is a prophet's reward? What was it that the widow of Zarephath and her son received from Elijah? They received life. They didn't die of starvation. They received the nourishment of bread and oil and water until the rains came. And then when the little boy died, what did he receive from Elijah? He received new life. He came back from the dead. Now a prophet's reward, as we'll see with a righteous man's reward or also considering the disciple, it it might be in reference to the reward that's promised to a prophet or to a righteous man, but more likely It's talking about the reward that comes through a prophet, through a righteous man, and through a disciple of Christ into the home where these apostles were told by Christ to leave their blessing. And a prophet's reward, scripturally speaking, generally, is a call to life. Either repentance unto life, repentance from sin, to go hold fast to the life of God, or as physically imaged for us in the ministries of Elijah and Elisha, actual life itself. These are foreshadowings of that which comes through Christ Jesus, who is himself life. Now, we keep on going in verse uh, 41 there. He who receives a righteous man in the name of a righteous man shall receive a righteous man's reward. Well, what is a righteous man's reward? What is the reward of he who is deemed to be righteous in the sight of God. I immediately think of Abraham in Genesis chapter 15. What was it about Abraham 
that was so unique, so powerful, so compelling, that becomes the characterization of Abraham in Romans chapter 4 and in uh, Paul's uh, letter to the Galatians and even in the book of James. It was that Abraham believed God and it was accounted to him righteousness. That is, he was justified in the sight of God. A righteous man is a man of great faith. And to this righteous man, through faith, is granted the reward of being deemed righteous before God, not because he's earned it or merited it. Abraham was a sinner, and we see it in his life. But because he believes on God, and he holds fast to the promises of God, and indeed turns back to God, that he can be called friend of God, justified in his sight. We confessed it this evening, didn't we? Justification is an act of God's free grace, wherein he pardoneth all our sins and accepteth us as righteous in his sight, only for the righteousness of Christ imputed to us and received by faith alone. We continue on now to the next rung down. We've considered apostles, we'll return to them, prophets, righteous men, and now disciples. In verse 42, if you look at it with me, and whoever in the name of a disciple gives to one of these little ones, that term Jesus will use again later on in Matthew's gospel, perhaps referring back to uh, the prophet Zechariah, but little ones would be those who are new in the faith, who are undeveloped, who are underdeveloped, who have sincere faith in Christ, but not yet the fullness of understanding that comes with maturity and growth in grace. He says, even if you give these little ones just a single cup of water to drink, truly I say to you with this prophetic utterance, with all the certainty of the word of God, truly I say to you, he shall not lose his reward. Even the smallest expression of hospitality will receive a reward far out of proportion to that which has been offered for Christ's sake. This is a gospel reward. All four of these examples are gospel rewards. They're not earned. They're not deserved. They are freely received through faith alone because of what Christ has done, winning for us the righteousness which we so desperately need with the Father. Matthew Henry put it so well. I don't generally make quotations in my sermons, but this one was perfect. I couldn't put it any better. He says, He does not say that they deserve a reward. We cannot merit anything as wages from the hand of God, but they shall receive a reward from the free gift of God, and they shall in no wise lose it, as good services often do among men, because they who should reward them are either false or forgetful, but our God is neither false or forgetful. The reward may be deferred. The full reward will be deferred till the resurrection of the just. But it shall in no wise, that is, in no way be lost, nor shall they be any losers by the delay. That is, in Christ's words here, we see the certainty of this reward. So there's two features, gospel features, I wish for you to, to note from this passage about salvation. And I want to ask you, do you believe this? Because this is what the gospel sets before us. This reward that Christ sets forth 
This re- the, the reward of a good reception, we might say. It's not something you earn or deserve. And it is certain. Because it depends on God. It doesn't depend on you. It doesn't depend on our works. It depends all on the grace of God our Father through Christ Jesus. Which we know and we lay hold of by faith. Now, does that mean that nothing is required of us? No, of course not. There is much that's required of us. But this reward is freely given. And this is where I want to return now back to the beginning of verse 40, where Jesus says, whoever receives you receives me, and whoever receives me receives him who sent me. You see the reward that is set before us. The reward that is set before all those who, to the disciples' great joy and delight, will certainly receive the gospel from you and from God's ministers. That reward is communion with the triune God through Christ alone. The reward is the Father through the Son by the Spirit. The reward is certain, as certain as it is that He exists and that He has from before the foundation of the earth. So too, that reward is set before us as the prize of faith in Christ Jesus who died for sinners that we might be saved. And this reward is freely offered and freely received, even as Christ earlier said in this sermon to his disciples. Herman Ritterboss put it well when he described just how great this reward is. There can be no greater grace than to have God as a guest in one's house. And so as you believers are received into the homes of those whom you are sharing the gospel with, they are, as it were, receiving Christ into their house through you and receiving the Father into their house through Christ who has come to them through you. And indeed, if you're sitting here this evening and you're hearing the words which are coming forth from this pulpit and and beholding the words that are in this text and you're receiving them into your heart, you're not receiving Zach Groff, you're not receiving Antioch Presbyterian Church. You're not receiving the Presbyterian Church in America. You are receiving the very words of Christ and in them receiving the Father who reveals Himself through these words. There can be no greater grace than to have God as a guest in one's house. There can be no greater reward than to have God dwelling in your heart according to His Word. In this and in this alone, indeed, is life. In this and in this alone, apprehending God through faith is the reward of justification. And in this and in this alone is the wisdom that Christ promises to all his disciples for faith, life, and godliness. Indeed, all good things are found in this one who speaks these words to us in Jesus Christ. This reward which is neither earned nor merited by us, but is received by the grace of God alone through faith, ordinarily wrought in us by the Spirit through His appointed means in the ministry of those whom God has set apart for the gospel. Now, what is required of those who hear this message, this message that, of the gospel, that indeed this reward is set before you, that all those who uh, receive Jesus Christ, God graciously rewards, even as Christ is offered to us in the gospel. 
Our shorter catechism puts it this way in summarizing biblical teaching. What doth God require of us that we may escape his wrath and curse due to us for sin? In other words, what must we do to be saved? The jailer said. To escape the wrath and curse of God due to us for sin, God requireth of us faith in Jesus Christ, repentance unto life, with the diligent use of all the outward means whereby Christ communicateth to us the benefits of redemption. And what is this faith? Ah, this faith in Jesus Christ is a saving grace. It is a gift of God, whereby we receive and rest upon him alone for salvation as he is offered to us in the gospel. What is that repentance unto life, the second thing required of us? It too is a saving grace, a gift of God, whereby a sinner, out of a true sense of his sin and apprehension of the mercy of God in Christ, doth with grief and hatred of his sin turn from it unto God with full purpose of and endeavor after new obedience. And what are those outward and ordinary means whereby Christ communicateth to us the benefits of redemption, who works faith in us, who turns us in repentance? Those outward and ordinary means whereby Christ communicateth to us the benefits of redemption are his ordinances, especially the word, sacraments, and prayer, all which are made effectual to the elect for salvation insofar as they receive Jesus Christ as he is offered to us in the gospel. My friends, this evening, the gospel, through perhaps an unlikely text, is set before you, even as Christ intended, as he's developing his disciples and deploying them on their first mission, and indeed on their enduring commission as apostles. And shall you receive it into your heart? I tell you once more, especially you boys and girls, you might not want to receive British soldiers into your home. I know I don't want to. But you must receive the gospel into your heart of hearts. For God graciously rewards all those who receive this Jesus Christ as he is offered to us in the gospel. And apart from him, life cannot be found. Wisdom has no foothold. Justification is as far from us as the east is from the west. But in this Christ, all things are offered and promised and freely given unto you who believe. For he has accomplished salvation on our behalf. And this is the good news the disciples were given and commissioned to bring. Finally, look at verse 1 of chapter 11. At the end of each of Christ's discourses in Matthew's Gospels, you have a statement like this, initiating a transition. When Jesus had finished giving instructions, I'd rather translate that, when Jesus had finished directing his 12 disciples, he departed from there to do what? To teach and to preach in their cities. It is tempting in our day and age to stay at home and to study on our own to neglect and contemn the ordinances which Christ has instituted in his church, namely word, sacrament, and prayer. But we see what Christ was about in his earthly ministry. He dedicated his time, those three years he had, to do what he was supposed to do, to teaching and preaching in the cities of the people to whom he had come. So who are we then to neglect so great a thing, something that Christ himself had so greatly ennobled and valued that he committed his earthly ministry to it. Let us then receive Christ, not merely in our affections, though certainly that way, not merely with our knowledge and our cognition 
and our intelligence, but let us receive Him even in our wills by committing to go and meet Him where He comes to us. Namely, in the ministry of the church, either this one or some other gospel-believing, Bible-preaching church. For in this is a reward, a gospel reward graciously given to all those who believe. Let's stand together for prayer. Lord our God in heaven, we've considered this evening that which Christ has set before His people in the gospel. Namely, that He has done it all and that He offers a gracious and certain promise, even dare we say reward, to all those who receive Him by faith. Lord, we pray that You would be glorified in our midst in this church built up. We do plead with You for life, even as You have so ably given to us in the increase of our families and in the growth of this small reorganization work. We plead from You as well, Lord. Grant us the joy of seeing sinners converted unto Christ and established as just and righteous in Your sight through Him. And grant us, O Lord, the wisdom to proceed with the ministry with which You have entrusted us. Grant us zeal and discipline and delight in Christ Jesus and in serving Him. We pray all this even as we dedicate ourselves to Your service. We pray now that You would receive from our hands an offering of praise and thanksgiving this evening and an offering of dedication. As we dedicate to You a portion of that which we have received, we pray that You would receive it and take it even to the ends of the earth in service to Christ our King as His kingdom extends to the remotest bound. In his name we pray, amen. Thank you for listening to this sermon from Antioch Presbyterian Church. We are located in the historic Cashville community of Woodruff, South Carolina, near the intersection of South Carolina Highways 101 and 417. For more information about Antioch Presbyterian Church, please visit antiochpca.com.